Hello, everybody and warriors listening to this podcast. Welcome to the first episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast with me, Amar Zaidi, Dr. Z, and me, Mike Callahan, Dr. C. <laughs> we are so excited for this episode. We have so many cool things lined up for you, talking about what's new in social media, what's buzzing, what warriors are talking about. And before we get to that, we should talk about what a warrior is. So we have these patients with sickle cell disease that are battling this terrible, chronic, debilitating disease every single day of their lives. Warriors in the truest sense of the word. After that, we're going to talk a little bit about me and you. Yeah, that's today's topic. Yeah, we'll talk about why we're doing this. Absolutely. And then we'll follow that up with a word of the day. And actually, that segment's going to be called the warrior word of the day. And, um, you know, we'll finish off with talking about a clinical trial that has changed the way we treat sickle cell patients all over the globe. Sounds fun. I'm pretty excited about this episode. Let's get to it. All right. So, Mike, I thought that a good way to start uh, would be to sort of discuss why we're doing this. Why are we here today? What, what is what are you getting out of this? Amar came to my office one day and he said, uh, I've been following on social media and I have patients who are taking chlorophyll. And I asked them, why are they taking chlorophyll? And they said, well, I read about it on the Internet. And he looked on the Internet and there was no good information about beneficial things from reliable sources. And so we thought we should uh, address that with, we initially we thought about a blog, but we thought it's, you know, 2019 and, and maybe podcast would be better. People can listen and, and hear what's new in sickle cell, learn about how doctors think about, about sickle cell, about new therapies in sickle cell, get patient perspectives and, and really balance that uh, social media influence to have really vetted, high-quality scientific information at a level that you can understand. So you, you said my trigger word, which is social media, <laughs> and that's going to send me into a rant. But yeah, that's exactly it. I think that for me, this has become a really a, a direction in my career that I wasn't anticipating I would take in that we as pediatricians, we deal with a very unique group of individuals. We're dealing with a new learner. And a new learner who doesn't take in information with a pamphlet or a brochure or a book, they're getting their information from their newsfeed on Facebook. They're getting their information from Twitter. And uh, it's been far too long that doctors haven't been part of that conversation. You know, we're quick to judge them on, on their belief of chlorophyll or amethyst crystals or alkaline water. But if we're not part of the conversation, we're not doing our part to sort of dissuade that. So this is a way to get back to the warriors, the sickle cell warriors, the information that they deserve to have in a way that they're comfortable getting. And I, I should say I'm 45 and I have five kids and I know nothing about social media except what Amar's taught me over the last couple of years. He dragged me onto Twitter and I learned a little bit about Instagram and Snapchat from my kids. I've got my phone set to alert me every time you tweet and it feels like a little win every single time I see one of those alerts go off. <laughs> I'm mostly retweeting you. <laughs> so I hope this can also be for old guys like me who don't understand this technology. You can just tune in and listen and hear what's going on on that social media and hear what's going on in the scientific literature and what's going on in the clinic.
the next segment of the podcast is called What's Happening Now. And Amar, you keep up on uh, social media and the Twitter and the Snapchat and I, what, I, what's going on? I have to say, I really like when you say the Twitter and the Snapchat. <laughs> That's, that, that, I like that. Um, you know, I thought, uh, Mike, that it would be really good to talk about what, what's happening now, which is, which is gene therapy. And I feel like warriors everywhere are, are talking about this. And it, and it's not just warriors. It's, it's, it's a lot of disease spaces that this is a, a hot topic. For sure. I mean, I, I say almost every day in clinic, somebody says, I saw on TV, For I saw sure. an article in the paper. I heard there's a cure. For sure. Tell me about the cure. I hear that a lot. So, you know, there's, there's news articles being shared on, on Facebook and Twitter, man cured in Alabama person cured at the I like that story. It's a good story. But but you see you see the debate. You see the um distrust. You see the the rightful almost rightful distrust sometimes um from a group of individuals who have a reason to be distrustful of the medical pharmaceutical complex. And and we're in a space right now where we're rebuilding bridges with this community. Uh, of people that have been mistreated historically. There's a lot to unpack here. I think that number one is the basics. So we have this new therapy that's really important for this group that had a curative therapy in bone marrow transplant, but bone marrow transplant was limited. And, and it was limited because a lack of donors. It was limited because people were worried about the marrow you receive rejecting the body. People were worried about big doses of chemotherapy and what that effect would be. And, and that limited bone marrow therapy quite a bit. It could be a cure, but only maybe 15% of people had an adequate donor to begin with. Right. And then you put all those side effects in. It's reasonable to say yes. It's also reasonable to say no. We've had people who did really well. We have people who had you know bad complications and even passed away from their bone marrow. And, and difficult to predict, right? There's no way to predict who's going to do well and who's not. Um, so, so gene therapy presents this really exciting option where, where suddenly the donor doesn't matter. You are your own donor. And that is so important and so, so different that, that this makes this really a truly exciting option. So the, 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 the 60 minute story that got all this buzz and all the press got all the buzz and all the press for the wrong reason. Doctor, give us a breakdown of, you know, how this gene therapy works, why it's been successful. Well, it's a technological tour de force. Yeah. And to think, when, you when, when you're wondering, why should we do all this basic research, this basic science, they took an HIV virus and they disabled it, but they used it because it's really good at, at transferring DNA into a cell. It's buzzing on social media because of the use of the word HIV during the segment. And the reason they use that is because, as you know, the virus that they're using to alter the DNA in the stem cell is essentially the outer shell of the HIV virus with the insides, the guts are different, right? It's like, it's like the body of the car without the engine. They've changed the engine and, and, and that's changed sort of where you're going, right? You're no right. longer going so, down the route of HIV. So you're, you're not getting a whole HIV virus. They're just taking the, the sort of clever parts, the way HIV gets into a cell, the way HIV copies itself. Exactly. And using that to get a hemoglobin gene into Absolutely. the cell. So right. they, they take a patient's stem cells out and they use this virus to get a hemoglobin gene in, but it's missing the parts that would make you actually get 
HIV. Yeah. Or what were the scary parts to you? You want to say the number one thing? Yeah. <laughs> Once we heard the HIV. Right. Thing. So I can tell you right now that that HIV virus has been disabled. It's been crippled. So it cannot infect you. It cannot. The part of it that allows it to infect you is gone. The reason why it's used is that it's very good at transferring DNA into a cell. Because I could guarantee everybody felt the same. <laughs> Stranger Things? Remember Stranger Things? Yes. Great, great show. show. The scene where, you know, recently, spoiler alert, the scene where they're, they're trying the, to get into the, the Russian the base. laser thing in, yeah. the, in the basement. Uh-huh. So what, what do they do? They, they, they knock out a couple of those Russian officers, and they put those Russian officers' clothes on. Right? That's essentially what's happening here. Gotcha. So the clothes is like the outside of the HIV virus. Exactly. And, and the person inside is the hemoglobin gene. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, so that's sort of what's happening here. And that's super interesting. So during the 60-minute segment, we get really, really spectacular physicians, John Tisdale and Francis Collins. I mean, Francis Collins, I was reading about his, was, his work the, in the Human Genome Project. Yeah, was, he, he uh, was involved in... Cystic fibrosis and cloning the gene. He was at University of Michigan, and I mean, he's now a, the director of the NIH. Really interesting guy, fantastic. Yeah, you absolutely. See, they just raised uh, two hundred million dollars to do gene therapy in Africa. Bill with Gates, the Gates Foundation, and yeah. NIH. Yeah. Well, Bill and Melinda. You yeah. don't want to discredit her. And Francis Collins. And Francis Collins, absolutely. So, anyways, I mean, the sixty minutes episode was great. You could see the enthusiasm from those from those scientists, and uh, really, I mean, what it meant to them to have this after so many years. Um, in a community that they've served, I mean, for a long time. And um, it's just, it's almost, it's a little sad to me that that we we sort of lost the message in the cloud of, of this terminology. But like, what I sort of want to drive home to warriors is we're not, we're not hiding anything. You know, we're not, we're not trying to hide things from them. I mean, we recognize that these are very intelligent individuals with information at their fingertips. And, and we should, promote that as their physicians. We should give them more. Absolutely. So where could they go to get more? There's so many great places. I mean, American Society of Hematology has a tremendous amount of resources. NHLBI, tremendous amount of resources. There's patient advocates that speak out so vocally and so eloquently about some of these key topics. CBOs, SCDAA. Um, we, we, we're in a, we're in a, thankfully in a place where we can offer patients ways to fact check doctors. And I think that's one of the reasons that this podcast meant so much to me is because I, I, I don't have anything to hide from warriors. I want them to know. I want to show them what, what we have and, 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 and have an honest conversation. And, and, you know, that, that's just so important to me. Um, so, so that's what's buzzing in social media right now. Gene therapy's coming. It might be a few years, but uh, it's not, never too early to educate yourself about it. We're going to talk a little bit about me and you. Yeah, gonna, that's today's topic. Yeah, we'll talk about why we're we doing are. this. Absolutely. So for me, uh, the story started in 1999. I was in high school and um, my first nephew was born in October of 1999. And this coincided with uh, our section in biology where we were learning about modes of inheritance. So I got to read about sickle cell disease in a paragraph on on, on how genes are inherited. And they contrasted that with how... For example, hemophilia is inherited. And uh, in that little paragraph of sickle cell disease, it talked about how this happens to people of African origin. And that was sort of it. It was a couple lines. And then my sister called me a few, few weeks after that. 
and was like, you know, we just got the newborn screen back on, you know, my, my nephew and uh, he's got sickle cell trait. And I was sort of like, that's weird because my biology textbook didn't sell this to me. They didn't tell they didn't tell us that people from the Indian subcontinent are affected by this. So so that that caused a lot of curiosity within me. And that's when I really started sort of first discovering this as a as an issue and, and how prevalent it was because the implications were big on that. It was not just my nephew. It was either my sister or my brother-in-law who had passed the trait on as well. So then it, it expanded from there. And then it just became a sort of a function of being in the right place in the right time around the right people. So through a series of different events, I ended up in the West Indies for medical school and got to see sickle cell disease there. Uh, that was my first interaction with a chronic disease as a learner. And that was pretty eye-opening. It was eye-opening to see a chronic disease being managed in a space where the resources are limited. And then I got to come back here and meet Mike and Wanda Sherney and Ingrid Sarniak and, and the people at Children's Hospital, which just happens to be the, you know, one of the busiest centers in the country as far as sickle cell disease goes. And I, I started seeing quickly a difference in how patients with sickle cell disease experience the medical complex compared to patients without sickle cell disease. And that struck a chord with me because it's hard to have a chronic disease. And uh, what struck a chord with me is it seems like it's even harder to have a chronic disease when you're a person of color. And I, uh, I sold myself, of course, on the biology of sickle cell disease, and that was super interesting to me. But it became a social justice thing. It became a mission beyond that where even if I don't practice medicine, I could hang my hat on being a voice for somebody who's not being heard. And that's something to be proud of. My first interaction with Mike Callahan was uh, somewhere around 2012 as a visiting resident uh, from an uh, enemy hospital down the road. And quickly I, I, I realized that uh, somebody that I had looked up to as a medical student was one of his teachers. So he was sort of the remixed version of that old mentor of mine. And uh, that struck a chord with me. And, and then I, uh, I decided that this is where I wanted to train and uh, quickly realized that I was working with somebody who was a very, very well-established and well-known, almost authority in the space of hemophilia and um, was just a, just a prolific researcher with this ability to convey difficult concepts in a simple manner. And I started modeling myself that way, too, because as you go through your medical training, you realize quickly uh, the people you want to be like, but also the people you don't want to be like. And I quickly realized that I want to be a Mike Callahan. I think you could aim higher than that. <laughs> if the question is, what, what is Mike Callahan to me? I would say he's like, a, he's like a muse. He's a muse. And that is why being able to track him down week to week in a confined space when he's not traveling, those are valuable pieces. So this podcast is basically a guise to to set up times for me and him to chat. Well, I, I'm excited about this podcast, too. I, I uh, have been fortunate to grow up in hematology in Detroit. And um, from early on, I was involved in sickle cell. We have a huge sickle cell population. And I was always very interested in it. But bleeding disorders was my first love. I had a great mentor, Dr. Lusher, and uh, great colleagues, and really a lot of opportunities in, in that field. And so I, I started out in hemophilia, and I was you know really interested in the science behind coagulation. I was working in a lab with a lot of mice and taking care of patients. And things I really liked about hemophilia were um, 
you know, it was it was a disease. So I, I had nothing against people who do primary care and prevent diseases. But as a doctor, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm doing my job when I'm taking care of people who have a health problem and I'm helping make it better. So I, I think the you know, severity of the disease, but also the chronic nature of it. So you had these longitudinal relationships. You got to know people when you were, when they were young and you followed them and saw them, you know, achieve things and graduate from high school and move off and get married and have kids of their own. And, um, I, hemophilia is a really nice community. I was involved in camp, um, have been for almost, uh, 20 years now. And so you see the kids outside of the environment and then some of the guys come back and are counselors at the camp and, and you see, um, sort of this community build up around it. So I, I think that combination of a significant disease with a scientific interest and then that longitudinal relationship you build with patients. And sickle cell has a lot of that. I, I think we've been really blessed in hemophilia for the last, since you know my career started at least, to have very good treatments and it keeps getting better. I, I was privileged to be part of a few trials that I think really made a difference recently. And people with hemophilia, I think, have the opportunity to to have good treatment and to achieve the things they want to out of life. I, I kept trying to recruit people to come take the sickle cell position in Detroit because we were looking for people. And having worked with the patients and, and uh, just, you know, uh, outstanding group of people and the opportunities to do good things in, in sickle spell space was, you know, was, I, that's what I was selling to everybody. And finally, I bought the sales pitch and I said, you know, this is a great job. I, I should take it. Sickle cell had a lot of those things I liked about hemophilia, the longitudinal relationship, the complicated disease state, the science. But I feel like we're early days in sickle cell. We're just starting to get effective treatments. There's a whole lot of things we need to do. And I think, you know, as Amar mentioned, there's a whole other layer to it. There's a, a social aspect. There's a demographic aspect. There's a social justice aspect that I think is there in hemophilia, but um, it's it's really prominent in sickle cell. And it's complicated and, and it's a different way to work. And I, I feel really privileged to be on a team where I, I have you know, social workers to help me. And, and we work with the Sickle Cell Disease Association and uh, Wanda Sherney, and she's just an outstanding advocate for the patients and really sometimes a go-between for us. And it's a family disorder. Hemophilia is too, but you get to know multiple extended members of the family. And uh, it, it's I've been my privilege to work in, in Sickle Cell now for, um, I think, a little over five years. I'm very happy to be in Sickle Cell. And I, I think, you know, without a doubt, the, the one of the best parts of my job is working with, you know, young people coming up in their careers and, and trying to help people out. And, you know, sometimes that goes well, sometimes it doesn't. And usually they blame it on the mentor. But I've come to realize it's mostly about the person you're working with. So when Amar joined our team as a, as a resident, he was a little bit too happy and too Canadian. And <laughs> um, he's always talking about social media and basketball and but uh, he was always positive, fun to work with, really gets stuff done, really cares about patients, um, really forward thinking. And I, I think this is an example of it. Starting a podcast and, and really getting the message out is, you know, an opportunity for advocacy for the patients. And uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to these conversations, too. All right. Now it's time for a segment that I'm really excited about. And the segment here is going to be called the Warrior Word of the Day. 
And I thought this would be a time point where me and you could sit down and talk about words that we use commonly, uh, that, that we have very clearly defined in our heads as physicians, and use frivolously, but maybe um, not so clear in the mind of the patient, the warrior that, that has to hear these words over and over and over again. So like some complicated medical jargon and make uh, it make it understandable. I hope you're ready for this one. Okay. This, this, this is going to this is this is something. So the word for this segment is sickle cell. Oh, that is complicated. I told you. No, seriously, it's complicated. I told you. <laughs> I told you to be ready. I think, you know, maybe if you hear it, everybody thinks I know what sickle cell is. And I, I think that's one of the problems with medical jargon is sometimes we use words and people maybe think they know what they mean, but we have a very precise meaning for them and it's, it's easy to misunderstand or, or use them wrong. So sickle cell is a complicated word. The first case of sickle cell that was reported was reported by a, a Dr. Herrick in 1910, and it was a gentleman called Walter Clement Knoll, who uh, was a dental student in Chicago. He was from the West Indies, and he was admitted to the Chicago Presbyterian Hospital. And an uh, astute intern looked at his blood under the microscope and saw these strangely shaped cells. Ernest Irons. Ernest Irons, People yes. forget about got, the intern. He, he got no credit. He wasn't on the papers. <laughs> um, but Ernest saw these sickle cells. So that's one way you can use the word sickle cell is the actual name of the red blood cell. So when the hemoglobin molecules, I think that might have to be a word for another day, yeah. um, drop off oxygen, they, they line up and they form sort of hard rods inside the red blood cells. And then instead of being sort of squishy bags of of hemoglobin that can go through tight spaces, they become hard, deformed sickle shaped. So a, a sickle is a device that people use to cut down wheat, They're like big uh, bent um, knives that they use to cut things. So sort of in a, in a banana shape. So that's one, one uh, way you could use the word sickle cell. That's mm -hmm. a, a sickle cell. But uh, we often talk about sickle cell or sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. And these mean subtly different things. So Sickle cell anemia is caused by a mutation in the hemoglobin. It's caused by the same mutation in everyone. So um, there's one DNA base that got changed from an A to a T, and that makes one of the little pieces of the protein, the amino, amino acids in the hemoglobin protein change from a glutamine to a valine. And when that happens, the, the hemoglobin molecules, in, instead of sort of floating around in there, they stick together and they stick together after they drop the oxygen and that forms those rods. And so if you have two of those sickle cell mutations, one from your mom and one from your dad, then all of the hemoglobin you make has a sickle cell mutation. And we say you have hemoglobin SS or sickle cell anemia. So sickle cell anemia really just means SS. Sickle cell disease is a bigger catch-all term that includes SS, but also other variant forms of sickle cell disease. So there are other mutations in hemoglobin that can sort of cooperate in a bad way with the, with the S mutation and form variants of sickle cell disease. So if you get a C mutation from one of your parents and an S mutation from another parent, then we say you have hemoglobin SC or sickle cell SC. And that's a form of sickle cell disease. 
There are others that are less common, like SD and SE and SO Arab, that are all uh, forms of sickling. Or you could have S beta thalassemia, where you get one sickle gene and then one gene that doesn't make hemoglobin or doesn't make it very well. So those are all forms of of sickle cell disease, and sickle cell disease causes. All sorts of complications because uh, you, you get the the sickling of these red blood cells. They cause occlusion, and you can have blockage of the blood flow, and then the tissue doesn't get oxygen, and cells die. And if that, if that happens anywhere, you can have pain from it. We call that a vasoocclusive crisis, probably another word mm-hmm. of the day. If it happens in your spleen, you can get damage to the spleen, and that can set you up for infections. If it happens in your lungs, you can have acute chest syndrome. It can happen in your eyes and cause retina problems. It can happen in your brain and cause strokes. It can happen in your lungs uh, repeatedly and, and lead to high blood pressure in your lungs called pulmonary hypertension. It can cause problems in your bones. So there are just many, many manifestations of sickle cell. So sickle cell is a complicated word. It is, it is. But I like the you know the idea of... Um you know, sickle cell anemia, obviously describing a situation in which you have just hemoglobin S, right? And and then this umbrella sort of definition of all the other variants that you can have. One thing that we didn't touch on, that if, you, if you'd like to, is uh, what happens when you only get one hemoglobin sickle gene? Does that, does that fall into any type of disease category? Yeah, so that that is not sickle cell or sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. It's uh, what we call sickle cell trait or you're, you're a carrier. But uh, maybe we'll have a podcast on later to talk about uh, the manifestations of sickle cell trait. It's not completely benign. It, yeah. it does uh, cause some issues, but it but it's very different from sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, there we are with Dr. Mike breaking it down for us. The word of the day. Sickle cell. Hi, Cheat Codes listener, podcast producer Patrick here, and it's my honor to introduce the next segment. Doctors Mike and Amar really value the patient voice, and they wanted to make that part of the podcast as well. So today, I get to introduce you to Jimmy Olga here. Jimmy has sickle cell disease and quite a story. His family is from Nigeria, and when his parents, who knew they carried the sickle cell trait, learned they were pregnant with him, They flew to the U.S. to have a test done where they learned that Jimmy would indeed have sickle cell disease. The protocol in Nigeria would have been to have an abortion. But as Jimmy puts it, his mother being a woman of faith, she decided to stay in the U.S. to have him, which is why, as he says, he loves America so much. Jimmy is an entrepreneur and an advocate living in Atlanta, Georgia, who I came to know through another podcast I produce, where he shared a very personal and powerful take on his experience living with sickle cell, and we wanted to share that here with you as well. So please enjoy this share from Jimmy Olga here, and Drs. Mike and Amar will be back on the other side with the Red Blood Cell Research Review. Thanks. When I was asked to highlight an aspect of my sickle cell experience at the tail end of 2018, I was excessively excited. Most importantly, I was excited about the opportunity to continue my sickle cell advocacy. But selfishly, I was also eager to use this medium as a trial to all the injustices I felt my doctors and nurses had put me through that year. After a brief cooling off period forced on me by the holidays, I've become acutely aware that the only injustice here would have been me writing yet another article on how life sucks living with sickle cell. 
and it truly does. Generally speaking, life does suck living with sickle cell. Every single day there's an obstacle, a new challenge, something to remind you that although you look normal, you seemingly aren't. It's a painful existence, admittedly, but if you harness the power the disease gives you, you have every opportunity to make it a uniquely special life. Every day you're blessed with the opportunities to learn, overcome, and understand. I know it might seem strange to highlight positives in something that brings so much sadness, but here's my frequently overlooked positive sickle cell experience. The ability to move from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm is success, according to Winston Churchill. In my case, the ability to move from crisis to crisis without loss of hope can also be described as success. I've been very successful at making my weaknesses my strength. I wake up every morning filled to the brim with resilience. Sometimes it seems like there's nothing I can overcome. Living with sickle cell and enduring a revolving door of hospital admissions, ER visits, and many, many pain-stricken nights has ultimately equipped me to confront the myriad of obstacles life loves my way. You're the strongest person I know. Every sickle cell warrior has heard that superlative used to describe them by loved ones. It's almost become a cliche, but the statement is as true as steel. Sickle cell has made me stronger mentally and physically. I've been told I have the body of an 11 year old, but I can assure you my childlike figure wields incomprehensible strength. The silver lining to being in pain from constant tissue and organ deterioration is that your body inevitably adapts. You build tolerance to the pain. At work, I perform at a higher level than my employees and colleagues. At home, despite the pain, I'm alert, active, and present. On a Saturday, you'll find me on the ladder installing another gadget or gizmo. I often wonder how much a part sickle cell has played in my addiction to excellence surely my personality can't be the only culprit live healthy or die trying i spend a good chunk of my time getting my mind and body to a healthy place it's something i constantly work on zig ziglar's approach to life improvements has been pivotal in my life people often say that motivation doesn't last well neither does bathing that's why we recommend it daily I've come to learn that motivation and inspiration is fleeting, and acquiring moments of them is a lifelong pursuit. I draw inspiration from sports, movies, books, and even daily life. I find inspiration in something as mundane as a caterpillar leaving the safety of its cocoon. I use it all as motivation. I'm always on a mission to build a better me. Mentally, I achieve this by communicating. I'm fortunate enough to have an ear to cry to. Someone is always there when my time gets tough. I never let my mind get stagnant. I'm always changing scenery and stimulating my obangada by learning new things. Physically, I try to do everything by the proverbial book. I eat clean, stay away from alcohol, and eliminate or keep my vices to a moderation. Adopting this lifestyle has made me has had me labeled a square, but with everything I'm fighting, with sickle cell, not adopting this lifestyle is equivalent to friendly fire. Don't get me wrong, sometimes acknowledging the situation sucks is refreshingly comforting, but looking at it through a positive lens 
Living with sickle cell has been a rocket fuel to all my dreams and aspirations. Although they might become statistically harder to achieve, sickle cell has a tendency to confine its sufferers to a bed. But if you learn how to harness the power in your struggle, I promise you you'll spend less time in bed and more time achieving your goals. All right, guys, time for our segment called Red Blood Cell Research Review with Dr. Mike, where Dr. Mike breaks down seminal, landmark, amazing studies that have shaped the way that we treat every single warrior that walks into a clinic anywhere in at least this country and maybe even around the world. What do you got for us today, Dr. Mike? Yeah, so I'm excited about this segment because I I think people come in the clinic and we tell them to do things and they maybe think we just made that up. All the time. And usually somebody else made it up and then they tested it out in a clinical trial. Wait, is that not how you're doing it? That's kind (laughs) of how I'm doing it. I'm just winging it. No, it's uh, evidence-based medicine. So so here is the evidence. Um, I am going to talk today about a a really important study that was published probably before you were born, Amar, in June 19th, 1986. Absolutely. It's called Prophylaxis with Oral Penicillin in Children with Sickle Cell Anemia. And the first author was uh, Marilyn Gaston. Um, And this was in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's a big deal. uh, Yeah, that's a... Top-notch journal. That's uh, a lot of things that are going to change how we treat people going to the New England Journal of Medicine. That's like the Time magazine of academic medicine. I think you've just totally trashed the New England Journal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So in this study, uh, the sort of the background was kids with sickle cell, as we talked about last time, have splenic dysfunction and were getting bloodstream infections with strep pneumonia and Neisseria meningitis and dying. So there was a previous study that looked at uh, 335 kids under three years old and about 10 out of every 100 patient years, there was a a sepsis event. That's a big deal. So out of those 335 kids every year, you'd expect 33 or 34 of them to get a bloodstream infection. And those infections, when people had them, they had a 30% chance of dying from them. Wow. And one thing that was interesting about strep pneumo and uh, Neisseria meningitis is they're both susceptible to penicillin. You can treat them with penicillin. So this group of investigators, and it was a group across the nation at 21 different centers who decided to test out whether you could prevent the infection. So if you put children on penicillin, could you prevent the infections? And so they did what's the gold standard of a clinical trial, a placebo-controlled. So some people get a sugar pill and some Mm -hmm. people get the drug. Okay. Double-blinded, so the person who's treating them doesn't know what they're getting. The person who's getting the drug doesn't know what they're getting. Uh, Controlled trial. So they had uh, kids come in who were under three years old, three months to 36 months, and they randomized them. They flipped a coin and they either got penicillin or they got the placebo. And then they followed them to see if they got infections or if they um, died from infections and also looked at side effects and things like that. And so the advantage of doing this kind of study is, you know, there might be other variables, other things that would influence the outcome. Yeah. 
But by doing a, a randomization, you hope there's an equal amount of that in each group. And they probably check that. And they do. They, they look to make sure the groups seem similar on, you know, whatever, whatever right. variables you, right. can, you can look at. So their ages were about the same, about the same number of boys, sure. Sure. about the same number of them had had infections in the past. Okay. So they're trying um, to keep it fair. Their hemoglobins were about the same. Yeah. So you want to you see if the effect is from the drugs. So you want everything else to be the same. And so they randomized these children, and, and 105 of them were on placebo, 110 of them were on penicillin, and they had to stop the study early because they have a group called the Data Safety Monitoring Board who looks to make sure the study's safe, and they said, this is not safe. The group that's getting the placebo is getting infections and dying. Wow. And so they, they had to cut the study short, and they said everybody should go on penicillin after this. Wow. So there were 13 patients who had sepsis in the placebo group and two in the control group, so it was like a not more than 90% reduction in sepsis, and there were three deaths in the people on the placebo group and oh none my. in the penicillin group. So the penicillin worked, and that became our standard treatment for kids under three 125 milligrams twice a day. We still do that. That's why we tell you that in clinic. Yeah. We did another study after that and found that if you go up to 250 milligrams twice a day in kids three to five, it also benefits. So um, so that's that's how we come up with these treatments. This was a seminal study that uh, saved a lot of lives. That's an exceptional uh, breakdown, Dr. Mike, and I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, uh, just to add to this, I mean, I have been doing this now for five years and... I have never seen sepsis. That's great. I, I think, you know, in addition to penicillin, we've done a better job with vaccinations. We have new vaccines that work, and sepsis is on the decline. Yeah. But it can still happen. So Absolutely. if you have a fever, you have to come in and get treated, and you have to take your penicillin and get your vaccines or you don't get that benefit. So now you know, thanks to Dr. Mike, why penicillin is so important in kids five and under. All right. Well, that wraps up episode number one of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast. Dr. Mike, I think things went pretty, pretty well for our first episode. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> so don't forget to subscribe to keep up with us and uh, make sure you share this podcast with anyone who you think is going to benefit from learning a little bit more about sickle cell disease. Make sure to give us a follow on our Twitter accounts. So are you at Amar Aruj one I am at Amar Ruj Zaidi, and you are at M Kalag One. We are going to be certain to share the text with you for how to follow us. Be sure to tell somebody about this podcast who you think could benefit from learning a little bit more about sickle cell disease and your battle. See you next time. <laughs>